Father in heaven, thank you that you have set us free. Thank you for your cleansing blood. Thank you for Jesus. We ask that that would become richer and deeper, more liberating to us this morning than ever before. Lord, may it transform our hearts and minds. Please pour out your Holy Spirit. Apart from you, this will just be words. It'll be worthless. But Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would accompany your word, and that you would bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It was a difficult escape. There were watchtowers all along the border of the country. He was crouching during the day in bushes, hiding in bushes, probably from bush to bush, and then during the night, making it as far as he could without them being able to see him day by day, and finally got past the towers and was able to escape into the desert. And then things became even more intense. How does one survive in a desert for days on end, all alone, without food and water? But he was an expert, and he knew how to survive. He knew what a desert climate was like. But I can only imagine some of the questions that may have begun to roll through his mind. God, why? Why is this happening to me? God, don't you understand that I'm trying to help you, and this is the reward for that? As Moses fled from Egypt to Midian, can't help but think the questions that he must have been asking as he had been trying to do what God's will was. He wanted to free the Israelites, and he had lashed out, and he'd taken care of somebody that stood in the way of them being set free, one of those oppressive taskmasters who was beating an Israelite slave. And this was his reward? This was his reward for trying to do God's will, for trying to do what was right? Why, God? Can you hear the questions in Moses' mind? It's fascinating then to see what God revealed to Moses. We don't know exactly when it happened, but after he's there in Midian, as he's there in the wilderness for the coming 40 years, Day by day as a shepherd, God begins to come very close to Moses and begins to reveal to him some precious truths. I don't know if he'd heard the story before or not, but it was God who inspired Moses to write down this story. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Moses is questioning, wondering why, God, why do you allow these things to happen in my life when I've tried to serve you, I've tried to do what was right? In Job chapter 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. How would you like to have that list after your name? It's a pretty amazing list, isn't it? Job is one who is blameless, or the word is Tom in the Hebrew. It's basically complete or perfect. Job was perfect. He was upright. He was righteous. He feared God and he shunned evil. What does that look like in a life? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, Jesus tells us that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect in Matthew 5.48. But what does that look like? Well, here's a picture. 
He had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. Maybe that's not the picture, but we keep reading. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Again, it's just describing who he is. Not only is he blameless, not only is he upright, not only does he turn away from evil, not only does he fear God, but he's also been blessed with abundance. He's been blessed with a big family. He's been blessed with a large household. But what does a perfect man do? How does a perfect man live? A blameless man, one who is complete and mature. Verse 4, and his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now we don't know what day this was, Some scholars believe that maybe this was their birthdays, that they would call everybody together on their birthdays. Others believe it was some special feast, or or maybe that it just meant that they were so rich, they were these rich kids that they partied all the time. We're not sure exactly, but regardless of that, they would come and they would go and they would feast together, the entire group of siblings together. What do you do? When you've raised your kids to follow Jesus, when you've raised your family, you've taught them to follow Jesus, and you see them going in a different direction. How do you handle it when they disrespect you? You know, we've had some interesting experiences over the past couple of weeks as we were with the Junior 10 at SoCal Camp Meeting, a church camp in, near Santa Cruz. We were with 10 to 12-year-olds three times a day, six hours a day, two hours each time, Man, I can tell you that I don't envy what you've gone through as parents. Although I hope that God blesses me to be a parent, I don't envy the difficulty of disciplining a child. It's a difficult thing to handle children who are disrespectful. Well, here is Job, somebody who has raised his kids to follow God, somebody who is upright and blameless, and his kids are partiers. They're the ones who go and feast. They're the ones that go and drink. And so what does Job do? Verse 5, So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. He would, he would say, Hey kids, I, I know you just had this party, but could you, could you come over to my house? And could we get together? And we need to do something. He would send for his children. He, did, he would rise he would sanctify them consecrate them set them apart and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for job said it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed god in their hearts thus job did regularly job is upright and blameless His children seem to be some sort of partiers, and Job is concerned about their lives, and as he sees the direction that they're heading in, what he does is self-sacrificing. What he does is merciful. He calls his children to him, and he, he goes through the expense of personally providing the sacrifice for them. He goes through the difficulty of waking up early in the morning so that he can offer this sacrifice early. He's sacrificing his sleep. He's sacrificing his, his goods in order to have mercy on his children. 
pleading with the God of the universe, will you please forgive them? Maybe just in their thoughts, they might have sinned. Lord, would you please forgive them? Would you please have mercy on my children? This is the picture that is given of a blameless and a perfect man. Right? Job's description of who Job is in the book of Job is that he was somebody who was merciful and gracious. He's somebody who would sacrifice his own goods, his own time, his own self-interest in order to be merciful to his children. He was focused on the good of others. Now we know that not just from here, but later on as in a part of the book where Job is lamenting the things that are going on in his life. Go with me to Job chapter 29. In Job chapter 29, it's fascinating what Job says about the type of person he was. It begins by describing how he really was a person that everybody was amazed by. But then it tells us why he was the greatest man in the East. Job chapter 29, and we will start in verse 6. When my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. It's a picture of the times when Things were luxurious for Job. He goes on to describe what it was like then. He said, When I went out the gate to the gate of, by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. The aged arose and stood. This sign of respect for this great man, Job. Can you imagine it? As he walks into the square, children are hiding. And older men are are standing up because this is an important person. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voices of nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. People didn't even want to talk in Job's presence because this was a holy man of God. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. When the eye saw, then it approved of me. Everybody loved Job. Not only was he wealthy, but look at how it continues. Because. This is the reason why everybody looked to Job. Everybody respected Job. Everybody saw that Job was this amazing person. Because I delivered the poor who cried out. those, Those who were less fortunate than me, I delivered them. I helped them out. The fatherless, that, that one who, who never had a loving father like Job was blessed to have. The fatherless and the one who had no helper, I also delivered. The one who was not having an advocate in court, Job would be the one to show up to help. Job was there for the fatherless. He was there for the poor. He was there for those who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me. When somebody was perishing, Job was there to be their friend, to help them in their need. Verse 13 continues, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Job watched out for the widows, those who were in need, those who didn't have somebody to be their defense. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Interesting language, isn't it? Knowing where that righteous robe comes from in the New Testament. We know that it's Christ's righteousness alone that could put this into Job. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. When somebody was blind, Job would help them figure out the way that they needed to go. I was feet to the lame. 
I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. All of these things Job did. This was the type of person that Job was. When the Bible tells us that Job was blameless, that he was perfect, that he was complete, it's a picture of a merciful person. Somebody that's watching out for the poor, that's watching out for the fatherless, that's watching out for the helpless. And it makes a lot of sense. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 5.48? He said, we should be perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect, but look at Matthew chapter 5 with me as it describes what that perfection is and where it comes from. Sometimes when I think about perfection, when I think about blamelessness, when I think about completeness in my Christian walk, there tends to be an idea of pulling things out of my life. And this very well needs to be the case in order for me to live a perfect life. But friends, the Bible does not primarily present a picture of Christianity which is a negative, in which is only taking things out of your life, but it presents a picture of a life changed, a life that is a blessing to the world around you, a light that is a life that is full of light, a light that is full of a life that is full of mercy. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll go to Matthew chapter five and verse thirty eight leading up to what he says in verse 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the principle that Moses was acting on, wasn't it? Moses had seen the oppression of the Egyptians against the Israelites. And so when he saw an, a taskmaster and he was able to take him out, he took him out because an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Isn't that fair? Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Instantaneously forgive him. Completely forgive him. Before he's done anything else, turn so that he could even slap the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use, who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is taking it to an entirely new level. This is what Moses needed to be taught in the wilderness and this is the type of life that we see Job living by his own description and by the description of the, the, the first chapter of Job. Then it goes on to say why, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Have you ever been driving down the highway and you drive up to a, a big storm, and as you're driving through the storm, you notice that it only rains on certain people's houses around you, that only certain people's gardens bloom. It's the people who have been good, who've been in church, who've paid their tithe. Have you ever noticed that before? No, right? Jesus is saying, God is merciful. He continues to send blessings to completely undeserving people. He, he sends a, his blessings to 
the good and the evil. The, the suntans don't belong only to those who are righteous, but the evil also enjoy the sun's rays. He sends His sunshine and His rain on both the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you see that therefore? The therefore is because your Father is like this. Because your Father is not a respecter of persons. Your Father has has done everything possible to save everyone. To pour out His blessings in the lives of the evil and the good. To do good to everyone possible. Because your Father is like this, you too in your sphere of influence, you too need to live a perfect life. That perfection includes going away from sin, turning away from sin. We see that in the life of Job. He turned away from evil. And primarily, that is because we learn to live merciful, unselfish lives. We learn that, that sin is, is something that defiles us because of the selfishness that is inherent in it. We learn that that sin is harmful because it harms the people around us, because it harms our own soul and our ability to love the people around us and our ability to love God. We talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says that because of your iniquities have created a separation between you and your God. They've hidden his face from you. You can't see the beautiful picture of a loving God because of the sin in your life. That's why sin needs to be done away with. And otherwise, if we are focused just on getting rid of sin in our life and we don't understand that it is about unselfish love, it's about the character of God, then we're missing the picture. Because look over in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, you get this picture that the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are trying to get rid of the sin in their lives. They're trying to, to perfectly follow the law, but they are woefully missing it, completely missing it. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Right? So they would go to their anise, their cumin, their mint plant, and they would count all of the leaves. And after they got to nine leaves, they would pull off the tenth leaf and they would say, that's tithe, I'm taking it to the temple. They would do that with all of their plants down to the smallest little plant. But then it says, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters? What are the more important things? I mean, tithe is important, is it not? Tithe is essential to our walk with God. But what is even more important than that? Justice and mercy and faith. Merciful. Just like Job. That is what God calls us to be. These you ought to have done. You should pay the tithe on the mint, on the anise, on the cumin. And you should do it out of the purpose of the greater things in the law, which is mercy and justice and faith and unselfish love. Blind guides who strain out a gnat, it's the smallest unclean thing, and swallow a camel, one of the largest that they knew of, of unclean animals. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You see the purpose. Jesus wants for us to be filled with His unselfish love. That's the completeness of character that God is longing for us to have. Just look in the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 384. Talking about the completeness of Christian character, it says this, The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. Isn't that beautiful? Perfection, completeness in Jesus comes when constantly from within us is springing out a fountain of love that comes from the only source of love, which is Jesus Christ. When the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and is revealed in the countenance. This is what Jesus is talking about. And it's no wonder in Luke 6, when verse 36, right after it, it says the same thing, that your Father is merciful, sending the rain to the unjust and the, the unthankful. It goes on to say, instead of saying, be therefore perfect as your Father is perfect, it says, be therefore merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Jesus wanted to get something across the most vital thing that we grasp in our religious experience is the unselfish love of a merciful God who's done whatever it took to save us and who asks us to do the same for a hurt and lost world. Love is the basis of godliness. It continues, Whatever the profession, no man has pure love to God unless he has unselfish love for his brother. But we can never come into possession of this spirit by trying to love others. Have you ever tried that? Decided, okay, now I'm going to start loving the people around me. It's not possible. I can tell you that because I just spent two weeks in a tent with 150 to 261 kids. Let me tell you, there was one morning in particular when we went out and I had the, the prayer adventure in the morning and I would take them on a hike and as I was Taking them on the hike this day, I decided to do something different. I wanted to provide something extra special for them. I was going to have them play a game. So I was blindfolding half the group, and I told the other group to just wait, and then I'd explain the game that we were going to play together. And they simply could not stand still for even two minutes to listen to the instructions to the game. They were playing tag. They were running around. They were yelling. They were talking. And finally, I singled out one of the guys, and I went up to him, and I said, What are you doing? Do you not understand that we cannot have fun, we cannot have a game unless you act right? So let me see your wristband. And so I took his wristband and I'm looking at it. I said, what's the number on here? I said, if you keep acting up, you're going to have to sit out and you're not going to be happy about it. In that moment, I was right. I was very right. This guy was way out of line. But I can tell you that by the end of the day, when he came to the evening meeting, I went up to him and I said, you know what? You were out of line this morning, but I am sorry. I was frustrated. <laughs> the way that I talk to you, I don't ever want to talk to you like that. God wants for us to be merciful. That doesn't exclude justice. Justice requires, is required by love as much as mercy is required by love. They're not competing values. They go hand in hand. 
There was another day when we went on a hike, and there was another boy who liked to act up every single group that we were in. And also in that group was another boy who was autistic. Now this boy, uh, for some reason, he had an affinity to me. He would run up to me, and he'd jump and like hug me. And he'd, if I closed my eyes during prayer, he'd be pulling my eyelids open. He'd be petting me. And he, he couldn't really talk much, but he was just a sweet boy. And so we're going on this hike, and as we get up there, I tell everybody to circle up, and this little boy comes up, and he starts hugging me, and he starts playing with me, and, and another boy in the group sees him do something where he's like doing something with me, and he looks at him, and he points, and he starts laughing. And in that moment, I realized something had to be done. I don't just step away from that and let this poor boy be laughed at. I don't let this entire group of people stand and watch, this, these kids watch and think that it's okay to tease this kid. And I don't want for his own sake, for him to think that he could walk away from that and that it was perfectly fine to do that. And I said, come on, buddy. You're going to sit out this activity. He's like, what? No, 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 no. I, I was just laughing. Uh, I, I really wasn't laughing at him. I was laughing with him. I said, he wasn't laughing. Let's go sit over here. I took him over, and I sat him down, and he sat out that activity. There's an entirely different way of going about it. Can you understand? There's a difference between justice without mercy and justice with mercy. There's a difference in what's going on in our heart. And God is calling us to be merciful, to be filled with, with His unselfish love. In the Review and Herald, June 27, 1993, it says, this is the evidence of our connection with God. The evidence that, that God is with us, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we know God is this, that we are merciful even as our Father who is in heaven is merciful. God calls us to be agents of mercy, to be there for people when they're hurting, to be there to lift them up, to be there and mercifully provide justice in their lives, whatever that may look like. But the principle of unselfish love has to be the priority. Without that, we're missing the point. Without that, we're like the scribes and the Pharisees who are like whitewashed tombs. We, we're, we have bones inside of us, dead man's bones, and we're not really doing what God has called us to do. As we progress in the book of Job, we find that this value of mercy comes as we have a right theology of who God is. It's important that we understand who God is. At the same time, there were Pharisees who understood many of the same things that you and I understand about God. That, that He is the one true God. That we shouldn't have idols. They followed the Ten Commandments so carefully. And yet they were missing the weightier matters of the law. They missed the picture of God's unselfish love. You know, Satan hates to see anybody be following the law. He hates to see anybody really grasping this principle of unselfishness. In the book Education, page 154, it says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. Unselfishness, that, that unselfishness that puts others before ourselves, is something that the enemy hates. 
From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. If you doubt whether Satan hates unselfishness, look at Job. Look at how Job lived. A life where the poor blessed him, the fatherless blessed him, the, those without helpers and the widows rejoiced in his presence because he was somebody who would help them, who would put them first, who noticed what they needed. But look at what happens to Job. Go back to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? Do you see how God regards Job in his merciful attitudes towards the poor, the fatherless, and his own children? Look at Job. Did you see my servant Job? Do you see how he's living? He's not like you, Satan. He has this principle of unselfish love that you said was impossible. And here he's living it out. Consider my servant Job. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, have increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. How evil is this heart of Satan to want to take all of the good things away from this merciful, just, and kind man? Do you see the heart of Satan here? And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that next week. We're going to see this great controversy unfold and we're going to see a bigger picture of it. But here you can see that the enemy despises those who live a life of unselfish love. I mean, just look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It says that Satan is going to come down with great wrath against the remnant of his seed, against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of of Jesus. Those who follow God's law of unselfish love are the ones that Satan especially despises. So the question for us today, how do we have that kind of mercy? We saw a little picture of it there. It says that we can only have this love by having Jesus in our hearts. But what is that? How does that take place? What does it look like? invites you to consider a story of a king. A king who had a man who owed him $115 million. As the king was going through the accounting of his books and he looked through his books, his servants came and said, whoa, 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 look at this guy. He owes you $115 million. And the king said, okay, call that guy in. We have to settle accounts today. And they called him in. And the king said, what is this? If you don't pay this right away, then you're going to be sold and all of your possessions with you into slavery so that this can be paid back. The man in shock fell before the king and began to beg and plead and said, look, if you just 
Give me more time. If you'll just be patient with me, I'll pay it all back. All $115 million, I'll pay it all back to you. That moment, the king could have looked at him and said, that's not possible. How could you ever do that? Okay, go ahead. We'll see how this goes. But instead, in that moment, in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18, what did the king say to him? Your debt has been forgiven you. All of those $115 million worth of silver, consider it paid in full. Go in peace. You're free. You don't need to worry about this debt anymore. Imagine that type of weight lifted off your shoulders to know that you don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to come up with $115 million in order to pay somebody off. But this man apparently didn't get it. We know that because of how he acts immediately after this. Because he goes out and as he's going out, he comes across the servant who this servant owed him about $8,400. And as this servant comes up to him and he sees him, he says, Aha! This man can help me begin to pay back my $115 million debt. He's forgot that the debt was paid for. He says, I need that money now. I need you to pay this money back to me. That poor helpless servant again falls on his knees and says the exact same thing that he had said to the king and yet it it doesn't reverberate in his heart he has no cognizance of the importance of mercy and instead of having mercy on this man he says to him no i'm throwing you and your family into prison when the rest of the servants see what happens they go with sorrowful hearts to the king and they tell him this is what he did and he calls for the man and he said You couldn't have pity as I had pity on you. Friends, do you see how we come into grasp of mercy in our lives? It's about the God who first loved us. It's about the King to whom you and I owe a debt that we could never pay. A debt that is far bigger than we can fathom. We have rebelled against the king of the universe. We've taken sin into our lives and it's hidden us from God in such a way that it will destroy us. The wages of sin is death. But the king, not only did he say, debt forgiven, but he came and he took that penalty of sin upon himself. He paid it in full for us. And it has already been paid for. And when we grasp that kind of mercy in our lives, it radically changes how we treat others. It works in us the goodwill of God. As long as we forget what God has done for us, then we'll go on expecting that others should give us our due. We'll go on trying to condemn others if we think that God is still condemning us. If we think that God is just waiting to punish us, then we're going to be quick to punish anybody who hurts us. So long as we have a skewed picture of who God is, so long as we forget His mercy in our lives, that while we were still without help, without strength, that Christ died for the ungodly so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him, that He became sin so that we could become His righteousness, as long as we forget that, then we will treat others the way that we picture God as treating us. Just look at what it says 
in The Faith I Live By, page 111. It says, The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented. He's not willing that you grasp this. He didn't want for Job to go on living a merciful life like this. You know why Job had the kind of mercy that he had in his life? Because he was constantly going to the altar. He was constantly looking forward to Christ. He was constantly bringing that sacrifice. He recognized that there was a sacrifice. He had beheld the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He kept going to Jesus. He understood justification by faith. As long as we don't understand it, as long as we don't clearly get it, Satan is happy. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. Do you want to be set free today? You will be set free when you realize that you've already been set free. You'll be set free from the sin in your life. You will be set free to live a perfect life when you accept Christ's righteousness today. It's been paid for in full. You don't have to begin to provide for it for yourself. That is putting on your own garment. He wants you to clothe yourself in His righteousness, in His righteousness alone. There was another man, a man not that different from Moses, who also had a lot of questions about God, why God was letting the things happen that were happening. In fact, he thought that he was helping God out as he went around killing Christians, doing everything possible to put Christians to death. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He understood that Christians were dangerous. He understood that following this Jesus was a harmful thing. And as Saul was going around murderously trying to put Christians to death, Jesus showed up to him. And in that moment, everything changed for Saul. Saul recognized that he had been forgiven a debt that he could never pay. And the rest of Saul's life was completely and radically changed. Just look at uh, Philippians chapter 3. As we close Philippians chapter 3 gives us a picture of the transformation that took place in Saul's life. That man who was righteous according to the flesh, who was a Pharisee according to the law, he tithed his mint and his cumin. He kept the Sabbath, but he forgot about the mercy, the love, the unselfishness that comes only from a merciful Savior. Philippians chapter 3 We'll start in verse 7. But what things were gained to me? This is right after he recounts all of his righteousness, all of the things that came to him as a Pharisee. He says, But what things were gained to me? These I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Everything is rubbish if it doesn't lead us to an unselfish love towards God and man. Everything means nothing if your theology, if your belief about God, if your religious practice does not lead you to be merciful to those in need. It doesn't mean necessarily that all of it is wrong. The, the Pharisees kept the Sabbath, but they were hateful to those who needed mercy and love. 
we need to question whether we really understand the truths that God has given us if they don't transform our hearts. Because selfishness simply is not a part of God's kingdom. Paul realizes that. He says, all is lost in comparison to Christ. I count all things to be lost, verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Saul says, we want to become righteous people. We want to be perfect. And we want to do it only through the righteousness that comes through Christ. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what Job had grasped as he went to the altar. He'd grasped the righteousness of Christ, and that had transformed who Job was. And as he was attacked, he was taken to a whole new level of understanding that. As we look at the coming chapters in Job, we discover that Job's faith was tried. But Eventually, Job is able to say in Job 23 and verse 12, he says, Though I am tried, I'm going to come forth as gold. My character is going to somehow come out of this. I trust that in the end, I'm going to see my Redeemer, that He lives, and that at the end, He will stand on the earth. Job understood. Job was merciful in the good days, when things were good for him, when he had all of the wealth, when he had all that he could desire, it was easy to be merciful. He was perfect in his spear, but perfection continues to grow as we see the loving character of Christ. It was the same for Paul. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. He says, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I keep on going. I keep on pressing forward to become more like Jesus. Then he goes on to say this, Therefore, let as many as are mature. That's the exact same word that he just used when he said, not that I have already count myself as perfect, So here he's saying, therefore, let us, as many as are perfect, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. I'm excited about looking at the book of Job because of the transformation that we see in the life of Job as he sees the loving character of God. And so I want to invite you over the coming weeks to focus in on the character of your loving God because it radically changes Job. How was Job's captivity transformed in the end? How was he set free from his, all that he was going through? In the end, it was as he had even more mercy and he prayed for those friends who had become like his enemies. Friends, God blesses the merciful. Jesus himself said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How do we receive mercy? How do we experience the love of God in our hearts? We all want it. We want to be unselfish. We want to care for the people around us. 
It only comes as we first recognize that we have been loved. We have been set free. And so I invite you to begin to search your own heart. To begin to ask God, show me in my own heart how I've been unmerciful. Ask God to point out the parts in your life that are not in accordance with his will. Because it's as we realize our lack of mercy that we realize that we don't fully grasp the mercy that God has had for us. Moses had to have begun to realize that as he was there in the desert in Midian, as he got that time to be still and to know that he is God, as he was out there, he began to recognize that his way of treating that taskmaster was not God's way. In fact, we read about how as he was there in the, in the wilderness, education page 65, it says, in the military schools of Egypt, Moses was taught the law of force. And so strong a hold did this teaching have upon his character that it required 40 years of quiet communion with God and nature to fit him for the leadership of Israel by the law of love. The same lesson Paul had to learn. Paul had to learn it. Moses had to learn it. And we're going to find out that Job had to learn it too. This week, I just want to challenge you to search your own heart, to ask Jesus to reveal to your heart. I'm going to be doing this just asking him, Lord, would you show me the parts of my life where I'm being unmerciful, where I'm being selfish, where I am neglecting those in need? Because I don't want a religion like the Pharisees that is only negative, but I want a religion that transforms the world around me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we long for this love, and we know that it only comes through a loving relationship with Jesus. We know that it only comes as we recognize what you have done for us. As we have been set free, Lord, set us free to love this world, to live a perfect life in your righteousness. Lord, we can't do this in our own strength but we long to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We long for you to live out your life within us. Please lead us to deeper and more beautiful pictures of your character and of the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.